Hi, I'm Liam. I'm Shanir. And I'm Leah. Uh, today in our podcast, we're going to be focusing on the films Made in L.A. and Precious Knowledge. So the documentary Precious Knowledge talks about the fight for an ethnic studies or specifically Raza studies program in uh, the Tucson Public School District. I was wondering, what were your guys' experiences in high school and were there any ethnic studies programs there? So in my high school, um, I was really lucky in the sense that um, most of the curriculum that I learned about was rooted in ethnic studies. uh, I'm speaking specifically more about the um, English and history classes I took, but even sometimes the STEM classes also had ethnic studies like elements to them. Um, And this was because my high school was like an alternative school. So we did not like our um, curriculum was not test like focused in test taking and stuff like that. It was, um, we had performance based assessments and stuff like that. Um, But I, so when reading, watching this film, I mean, like, I just, I just, it was almost shocking because and also humbling because I realized how lucky I was to be able to go to a high school like this because the fact that there are people who have to fight for, you know, like their right to take um, a class to learn about their own history. I, I just thought that was just striking because I had, because my high school was, my high school experience was the way that it was. And like, I just didn't associate, like, I just didn't realize like, oh, it's actually not normal that in, in most other schools, um, like ethnic studies is not a priority for um, the curriculum of the classes. As I watched Precious Knowledge, I was shocked by the magnitude of the response the school district had. At my high school, I had a domestic social issues class, a contemporary American culture class, and in my Spanish class, we covered similar aspects of the Chicano history that was covered in the film, but no one really seemed to care. It was striking to me that they never had any complaints about the teachers. They never thought that the quality of education was bad. It was the content that scared them. And everything mentioned in the class was part of American culture and American history and American literature. And the fact that since it wasn't the primary narrative that was being shared, that was that big of a problem for the different people in government and on the boards. Uh, Overall, I thought the film did a great job at showing that uh, balance, the back and forth in between having education but having to have a specific education. And uh, when the man said, race is no longer an issue, that was a quote that really stuck out to me that shows the kind of how isolated he is from his students or the students in his district. So, yeah, it's interesting to hear about your high school experiences and about the experience that um, Precious Knowledge talks about, because like my high school had like basically no ethnic studies classes or even really components to classes. Um, It was pretty much just the core curriculum that we were taught. And honestly, when I was in high school, I didn't really notice the absence because I had never really experienced that. So I really didn't even think it was a thing to teach about specific cultures other than quote unquote American culture in high schools. Um, It wasn't really until I came here that I realized that that was even a thing that happened. Um, But honestly, I mean, coming from a place like Seattle, 
I don't think there would be the same response as the response in Tucson. I mean, I was pretty amazed at how big of an issue it was. Um, like, it was pretty crazy. But I also really think that my high school would have really benefited from a program like this because, like the school in Tucson, it seems like there were a lot of kids that did become disengaged with the education system. Like, I think there was a quote from one of the teachers that said, I've never met a kid with a dysfunctional relationship to learning, but I've met a lot of kids with a dysfunctional relationship to school. And I definitely noticed that a lot in high school, like a lot of people that just couldn't relate at all to the content that they were learning. And I think having an ethnic studies program would have really helped those kids. Hearing about your experiences, uh, or all of our experiences as a, as a whole um, and reflecting on that really makes me think of like, uh, connect back to like this whole idea of like how we can't just see like our society as a colorblind society. So like, you know, in precious knowledge, I mean, they equated the idea of ethnic studies or like these students studying their own history, Chicano history to, I mean, dividing America. They equated it to slavery, to um, being, being the, like the ideologies of the KKK because Oh, the idea was, well, we should, um, as Americans, we shouldn't be creating more barriers, but in, like we should, um, what you call it, be learning about American history and not just like our own individual history. Um, so in our, one of our earlier readings, um, the theory of racial formation, um, a quote, uh, this pre, this um, sort of like idea and question knowledge, knowledge um, reminded me of, of a quote about colorblindness um, in American society. And it says that in its most in advanced forms, indeed, it has no per per perpetrators. It is a nearly invisible, taken for granted, common sense feature of everyday life and social structure. This is a situation that has allowed US courts and mainstream political discourse to block race conscious reparative me measures such as affirmative action to proclaim the United States a colorblind society and to stigmatize anti-racist racist act activists and intellectuals, legal pra practitioners, community organizations, school systems and universities, and other individuals and institutions seeking to overturn structures of racial exclusion and discrimination as quote-unquote play playing the race card as the quote unquote real racist. So that was exactly, I just thought that, that quote exa explained the the, um, knowledge, the like the reasoning behind those that were in opposition to the Raza Studies um, program. Like it, that, that was, I felt like that quote was like an, a direct like explanation for that. And I just thought it was striking because like here we are trying to like, you know, promote we're like the trying to promote like racial the end of racial exclusion and discrimination as the quote says yet like it's still being taken as like well this shouldn't be about race in the first place we can't we it's like we can't just forget about it um though like it's not easy it's easy for them to say but not as not as a student who like this is this has made this has made a lot of like transformative transformative changes in their lives um, by studying this content. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, what you said was so interesting and it's crazy how well that quote in theory of racial formation connects to, um, to the movie we watched. Um, but also I think it's really important, like the idea that people thought that they were like dividing people of different races, because there was a lot of stuff that, um, the documentary showed about the opposition side, the things that they were thinking about the movement towards, um, ethnic studies classes. Um, and I mean, a lot of the stuff was actually kind of funny because the things that they said to me sounded like good things, but they were actually criticisms of the program. Like um, Tom Horn, the superintendent, said that uh, with ethnic studies, there's a desire to develop ethnic solidarity. And I was thinking, yeah, that's great. You know, <laughs> that's, that's an amazing thing. And then, but he's obviously saying, you know, it's like, this is the worst possible thing that they could be teaching these kids. Um, so I think it's really interesting how there's like such a deep divide in the way that people interpret what these classes are teaching. Um, and another thing that he said that I thought was really telling was he said that we don't see ourselves through what race we were born into or what gender we are. We see ourselves as individuals. And I thought that was really interesting in connection to Oluwau's book about, so you want to talk about race because she talks a lot about privilege and kind of what comes with being uh, especially an ethnic minority, but honestly any minority, is the idea that you can't ignore the fact that you are that because you are like confronted constantly with reminders that you are different. Um, so I feel like this tells a lot about Tom Horn's um, specific, uh, as a white person, he is coming in this with this idea about race that like we can be colorblind, like you were saying, Shanir, that, but on like, but obviously these kids and the teachers are coming with a completely different perspective. And I feel like they acknowledge that like for them, at least race cannot be ignored and that's why they need to be taught about it. Um, so there's definitely like a really huge divide between the two groups in this movie because they just obviously see things so completely differently. Thanks so much, Leah. Those differences, those different perspectives and not seeing things uh, from the, other side's point of view is the problem that Anzalua talks about in Borderlands as well. Uh, the ethnic studies program in Tucson, it wasn't a problem until it was made a problem. And that kind of shows how the dominant culture was uh, getting prioritized in this situation. Uh, in Borderlands, they, there's the quote, culture forms our beliefs. We perceive the version of reality that it communicates. Dominant paradigms, predefined concepts that exist as unquestionable, unchallengeable, are transmitted to us through the culture. And uh, precious knowledge that was transmitted through education. And once that changed to reflect the true history of the United States, people started to be uncomfortable with that. So with the conclusion of um, Liam's comments about uh, the connections between Precious Knowledge and Gloria Anzaldúa's Borderlands, I would also like to um, bring up another connection um, for that we can end off on, uh, end our discussion uh, about Precious Knowledge and shift gears to Made in LA. But um, what you call it, the connection that I would like to make is to um, her uh, excerpt from How to Tame a Wild Tongue where she says, for people who are neither Spanish nor live in a country in which Spanish is the first language, for people who live in a country in which English is a reigning tongue but who are not Anglo, for people who cannot entirely identify with either standard 
Spanish or standard English? What recourse is left to them but to create their own language? That quote particularly reminded me of the reason that ethnic studies even exists. Um, you know, uh, Leah spoke about like not even rec realizing that, you know, there was an ethics, like learning about one's culture was a thing in some high schools or a thing in some schools. Um, so being that like we already are like as as communities of colors are already being erased from American history, they're sort of, ethnic studies is the reclamation of that. Um, and like Anzal Amdua mentions, like what, it's, it's only their, it's simply a response to, you know, like being that, like there's no sort of standard, standardization as there is for American history um, to learn about ethnic history. Both of these, both precious knowledge and um, the next uh, viewing that we were going to be speaking about, made in LA, um, have these uh, this idea of um, fighting for one's rights. Um, and for precious knowledge, obviously, that was the fight. There, the the way that this manifested was them fighting for the their Raza Studies program. Um, for made in LA, it takes a little different of approach. Um, it's fighting for workers' rights, for immigrants' rights, kind of a, a multitude of um, different um, things come up, topics come up in Made in L.A. that are worth discussing. So for me, uh, Made in L.A. was really surprising because I knew that fast fashion is a major problem in the U.S., but I always thought that the problem about it was overseas, that was sweatshops in Cambodia or Vietnam that were the issue and that there was a layer of separation. But hearing about the problems that exist right in L.A., here in California, I was shocked that there were that horrible conditions and payments so much below minimum wage and uh, really brutal working conditions with no lunch breaks or ability to use the bathroom. Uh, that was really surprising to me. And uh, because of that, I'm wondering if you guys also uh, were surprised by the fact that this was happening here in L.A. or if uh, this was something you were already aware of. Yeah, um, I definitely didn't know about that. I mean, I kind of, like like you said, I was aware of the problem overseas, and I actually thought Forever 21 was overseas. Um, but yeah, I had no idea it was here, and I think it just goes to show how like we're not very aware of what's even going on in our own country, which is kind of scary, because we like to think that America is this like really nice place where we have all these, like, nice ideals of democracy and freedom and equality. But again, like that always changes when you learn about things like this happening on our own soil. I just wanted to also bring up a quote that one of the um, garment workers um, said in the film that really was like striking to me. And it was very sad. Um, she was speaking about like her, one of her uh, friends who also was a garment worker, she was, she was like, she's another exploited one. Um, and they both smiled and started laughing. Um, and I just thought like, you know, it's just like how much, you know, how bittersweet is, is that like that they came to America with the same ideals that, same ideas that um, Leah mentioned about like, you know, um, like America being this like, place where they can like just get away from the issues um, that they they faced in their country their countries and they came thinking that like it was 
like like many immigrants, thinking that this was a place for opportunity and stuff like that. But because of their situation, because of their um, them not being them being undocumented, or um, because they are poor, because they're immigrants, like they were exploited and basically led astray, and um, and and it, it's just it was just like. It was just very like humbling, um, just thinking about like, you know, the fact that like these these women like they didn't. This was not anything that they. I don't think they had imagined for themselves, um, and it also reminds me of An- Anzaldúa's uh, um, like characterization of the whole um, borderlands theory, like. That one part, one part of the the individuals that are usually stuck in a borderland is like, you know, exploited individuals. They're stuck in between. They're they're exploited because they're stuck in in between. Um, and like that's, it's it's just sad that that concept continues to be like repeated throughout the films, even as they like throughout the film, even as they like. Um, go through, they have little small victories here and there, but like um, for the most part, like when their case gets dismissed, for example, like it's just things like that also discourages. Thank you so much for your comments, Shanir. Uh, We're going to wrap this up soon. I hope that you enjoyed this chance to hear about how Borderlands connected with the films Made in LA and Precious Knowledge. Uh, You'll hear more from us next week. Uh, Stay tuned.